Hey everyone, before this podcast begins, we want to tell you about some other arts-related podcasts you're going to love. They are The Conduit Music Podcast, Artsville, Gringo and the Man, Art World Horror Stories, and Not Real Art. On these action-packed podcasts, you'll hear experts talk about creativity, design, the music biz, the art world, visual art, American craft, Chicano art, street art, graffiti, and even stand-up comedy. So be sure to find and follow these great arts podcasts today. Now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to Not Real Art, the podcast where we talk to the world's most creative people. I am your host, your faithful, trusty, loyal, relentless, tireless host, Sourdough, coming at you live from Crew West Studio in Los Angeles. Thanks for tuning in. We do this for you. It's all about you. If it wasn't for you, well, I'd just be talking into a microphone and that would just be weird. So thanks for being here with me. We have a great show for you today. We're talking to one of our alums, one of our winners of our 2022 Not Real Art Grant for Artists, Ella Maria Foley-Ray is part of our 2022 class of grant winners. So we're going to talk to her today and learn about her work and her story. So stay tuned for that. But before I get into it, I want to thank you for tuning in. As always, please be sure to like and comment and share this episode. Also, be sure to go to our website, notrealart.com, and check out all the good, healthy stuff we got for you. We're always publishing amazing new content featuring artists and their work, and it's a fantastic place for you to learn and get inspired. So be sure to go check out notrealart.com. Okay, today we have one of our grant winners, and I tell you, I love our grant winners. One of my best parts of my job is when I get to call people and tell them they won our grant in 2022. Uh, We had another six winners. This year, we're not doing the grant 2023. We're going to announce, uh, we'll do it in 2024. We're going to start skipping a year. But anyway, in 2022, we had six amazing winners. Ella Marie Foley Ray is a wonderful, fantastic, brilliant human who happened to be, I don't know, lucky enough to win our grant. And we're lucky enough to have her. Like all of our grant winners, Ella Maria is just a fantastic human. Her fired clay sculpture evokes continent on dysphoric African cultural expression to address questions concerning humanity. Uh, serious stuff here, people. Ella Maria is a professor of African-American studies and visual anthropology. She is a student of Jamaican Rastafari movement and a visionary creator of material culture. She creates a relationship between ethnographic data and visual art as a tool for understanding our human experience. She earned her BA from Colorado College and an MA and a PhD in anthropology from John Hopkins University. And she studied figurative and conceptual ceramic sculpture independently with Arthur Gonzalez. And I mean, her CV goes on and on and on. She's studied in Italy where she was an artist in residence. 
you know, I could go on and on. I mean, her my conversation with her was so inspiring and enlightening, hearing her perspective of how she shines her light towards illuminating the African-American experience here in the U.S. and using her art to address uh, important questions regarding the human experience and the human condition, which is a tricky one, as we know. And so I just, I, on this episode, I was kind of like a fly on the wall. I was just listening as Ella Maria was so eloquently and passionately educating me and informing me about her experience and her point of view and all of the critical issues that her practice addresses. So I think you're going to love this. I'm just so honored and touched and grateful to have Ella Maria as part of our Not Real Art family. So without further ado, let's get into this episode and hear from the one and only Ella Maria Foley Red. Ella Maria, welcome to Not Real Art. Thank you so very much. Oh my goodness, that's so great to have you here. You (laughs) are one of our 2022 grant winners, and Mm. we just want to celebrate you and honor you, and I'm just so glad to, to be here with you right now. Thank you. Thank you. I am truly honored to be a recipient of this award. I'm just grateful. Thank you. Well, you know, you are one of six female winners. This year, we had all female artists. It was amazing. Oh, wow. First first wow. time. And we've had, we've always had a good kind of diverse mix of winners, uh-huh. uh, diverse in all ways. But this year, we happened to have our, our complete female class of winners. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> 2022. I love it. It's about damn time. <laughs> well, so where were you? Do you remember where you were when you got the news that you won our grant? I was at home. I was at home problem solving around an art issue, really trying to think about this next body of work that I'm grappling with. And I received this email. And at first I didn't I didn't know right. to take it seriously. Just another email. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, just Exactly. Yeah. There's so many of them. And something said, don't blow that off. Go through it when you get ready to go through your emails for that day. And I was floored because I never, I never expected to be a recipient. I never expected to, to be a recipient. I know that you all draw artists who are such visionaries and are so committed to this idea of visual art and community and transformation of humanity, you know, I really thought I was a long shot. So I was, I was floored. Turns out you were just the right person at the right time. And by the way, you know, that's probably the case more times than not, you know, isn't it funny how we have this imposter syndrome and we have insecurities as artists, as humans, it's like, Oh, you know, I won't get it or I'm not good enough. Turns out, you know what? You're perfect. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. It was a study in, yeah, you're a long shot, but submit your materials anyway. Yep. And when I applied for this, I kept telling myself that my work is my work. Mm-hmm. And if I didn't receive this, 
you're saying no would have been a not yet. You just right. reapply. That's right. It was an extraordinary experience. Well, that's wonderful. You know, and, and here's the thing, right? I mean, the hardest, you know, I, I feel like I have the best job in the world sometimes because, you know, I get to make phone calls like I did that day or send emails like mm-hmm. I did and, and, and congratulate the winners and stuff. And that's such a, for me, that's such like a beautiful, sweet, poignant kind of moment that I love. However, the run up to that phone call is stressful as hell. <laughs> sure. Right? Because, you know, we're blessed to have an abundance of very strong candidates that are submitting. And, you know, my goodness, at the end of the day, I mean, you try to be as objective and rational as you can, but of course it's art and there's always an element of subjectivity, but we try to, through our panel of judges and the way we handle everything, we, we work very hard to find those winners that we, th- we think are telling important stories and represent who we are too. I mean, we want ambassadors Right. On a certain level. And, you know, on a certain and and that being said, it seems to me and this is just my two cents that if you're looking for the best stories, oftentimes those stories come from the most unexpected places. And once humanity and one's journey on this planet shapes who we are and shapes our story. Right. So so the idea that our grant winners, not just in your year last year, but in every year, have these amazing stories, these amazing lives are just incredible humans. And they come from all walks of life. They're not, this is not a, oh, you got your MFA from that school, or you don't have your MFA, so you can't play. No, that's Mm -hmm. not what we're about. We look at the whole application, the whole applicant, the whole, try to consider the whole story, because for us, that's where the magic is. So what are you working on these days? What is going on? I know you said that you're wrapping up the semester. How did the semester go this year? When I'm in my teaching mode, I can't focus on my art in the same way I can when I shift. Yes. However, I am working on a series of quilts that looks at the life of Rachel B. Noel. Mm-hmm. And she is this remarkable woman who's a daughter of Southern Soil. And she was pivotal in, let's say she was a kind of catalyst or an organizer for the desegregation of the Denver Public Schools. She was a woman of African ancestry, an African-American woman from the South. She was a social worker and very grounded in this idea of how do we empower youth and children through education? What is the nature of that? What was important to me is that she was someone that was in, lived in my community. All right. I grew up in a time when Denver was really segregated and we knew of different areas, you know, That was for the Latinx community. This was for the African-American community. All of that was for the white community. And what happened when segregation was in place is our community dignitaries lived with us. So we were all at King Supers. We were all at Safeway. We were all showing up at the gas station. So we were living in the fabric of each other's lives. And so my work looks at 
the relationship I have with this extraordinary woman who is now an ancestor. And I'm asking this question, how do we look at the people who are elders and become ancestors in our own lives? That the history that someone else will read about, we're creating right now. So what I'm doing is I'm creating a series of quilts, a series of ceramic quilts that talk about the ways and the places where her life and my life intersect. So, for example, we know that the Supreme Court ruled that it became illegal to desegregate or to uh, segregate the public school system in 19, what is it, May 17th, 1954. Denver did not officially desegregate its schools until the the ruling came down in 1973 and then 1974 was the first year that this happened. I was one of the children that went to a school that was intentionally built for Black children to attend. It was going to be my first year at this school. And so I'm creating these quilts that talk about where her life and my life intersect and the responsibility we all have to carry on the work that others are doing to advance humanity. And I'm making quilts because I've been very interested in this idea and the work of scholars who have looked at African-American women quilts, women's quilts, particularly during the time of enslavement, and how you'd have these women creating these beautiful textiles that would be used in the big house, and then at the end of the day, find whatever scraps of fabric they have and create the quilts that would document the experiences of their own families as well as keep people warm at night. There is something about sleeping beneath a quilt that that have been made by the hands of people who love you that will induce a deep sleep. And so I'm using quilting as a way to talk to ancestral women. I am using clay because that is how I write the narratives I tell. I'm calling on the life and the work of Rachel B. Noel because she was truly committed to liberty and justice for all. She was committed and she worked within the construct of the community. And she was deeply loved, deeply and continues to be. So I'm working on that. And then I am working on a series of quilts that look at the work of Octavia E. Butler. And I'm pulling on her because she was an only child. She had a learning disability. She came from a disadvantaged home. And the thing she wanted to do was write. But not just write, but write herself into a fiction that 
Black people and people of color had been excluded from. So I'm taking each of her novels and all of her short stories, and I am creating a series of quilts that I hope one day will travel and engage people in her work through looking at the symbols and the meaning of the literature that this extraordinary visionary left us. She left us with a legacy of 12 novels. And people are taking her work and doing remarkable things. I want to honor her by way of the clay, bring the clay and the cloth together to say what needs to be said Mm -hmm. or what I'd like to share. Yes. So, so much of your work requires significant investigative journalism, (laughs) right? Due diligence, research, analysis, understanding, building on the school analogy, homework, girl, you got a lot of homework. Hours and hours and hours, hundreds of hours, I'm sure. So when it comes to, you know, working on a new body of work like this, certainly during the school year, do you sort of think of the summertime as your time for making? And then you think about the year, the school year as your as your time for sort of research and due diligence, because that's maybe all you have time for. Like, help me understand your process and your practice and how you squeeze in all of the, the research and due diligence that you have to do. And then when are you able to finally kind of roll up your sleeves and start making? It's a struggle. Yeah. I try to do some kind of research during the school year. And it's digging into, like here we have the Blair Caldwell Library, which is which is our Schomburg. And spending time in the archives is extremely important to me. But there are people who knew Dr. Knoll And actually, Dr. Knoll was one of the founders of the Africana Studies Department here at Metropolitan State University. So there are people who knew her, her children, of course, who were adults, are are around. So during the school year, I'm trying to figure out who I need to talk to. I'm trying to think about, you know, I've taken notes. So let's look at the notes. I try to listen to previous interviews that she did with other people. And during the school year, I try to do sketches. I think about images. I think about what kind of fabric am I going to use? What kind of clay body am I going to use? I try to do test tiles so that when summer comes, I know, okay, I need 25 pounds of chocolate clay and I want to start off, you know, I'll biscuit and then I want to get it to a mid-range cone. And then I want to think about what do I want to sew it together with? Do I want to use a wax cotton? Do I want to use a wire? Do I want to tie it together some kind of way? I try to do my experimenting Mm -hmm. during the school year so I could, you know, do the test tiles so that when summer hits, I can throw myself in. In an ideal, perfect world, I want to start a body well enough advanced in the summer so that when fall and winter comes, that's my sewing time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I can bring pieces in and sew sections and then take them back out to the studio 
and put them together. So it's a year round process. I'm trying to read and work simultaneously. Yeah, I don't mean to imply that it is this sort of incredibly segmented kind of division of labors. It's like, oh, first A, then B, then C, then D, because we're juggling so many things, right? It's, it's yeah, you're having, things are happening on parallel paths and, you know, maybe different pieces are in different stages of development, you know, so so I, I totally get that. I But I love to hear how artists work, right? I mean, that's so important. Mm-hmm. I think it's also so enlightening for listeners, it's certainly for non-artists, you know, it takes the artists, right? I mean, you know, as far as maybe the average layperson is concerned, artists are magicians, right? They they, they pull rabbits out of hats and the, what they do is just, oh my gosh, I, I could never do that. And But to be able to really unpack the process it helps to humanize, right? Or to demystify the art making process and humanize the artists. And, and I think also empower the listener, empower regular folk, to start being creative and experimenting and expressing themselves. I mean, because we Mm -hmm. all need to express ourselves. Well, it's what keeps us human. Yes. It is what keeps us grounded in terms of feeling what we feel, Mm. being aware of what we know, and also connecting to others. Sometimes it makes my heart bleed to hear that schools are cutting back on art programs. Yep whether it's visual or or performing, because it is what allows our brains to develop into being the kinds of scientists that we need, Mm -hmm. but also this idea of having empathy. Mm. You know, when people look at my work, I want them to feel like if they want to touch it, that they can. Mm. I want them to be able to ask me, well, what did you use to, to grapple with that color? Well, that's actually the melted wax of a crayon, or this is an acrylic wash, or this is a glaze. And in this context, the glaze is really glass. So we're bringing the glass and the earth together with heat. I am concerned that we are not encouraging as much artistic expression as possible. I think it's important for our health, literally, I think it is crucial in terms of thinking broadly. I think it helps in in terms of understanding the nuances of math and literature and chemistry. I know that there's some Mozart and some Thelonious Monk in the periodic table. There's a poetry there that ties them all together. And I know that if we can just take a deep breath and go back to that time, you know, there was a moment, and I, and I try to remind my students of this, where, you know, we had the, the big fat Crayola, mm-hmm. and our mothers had this nice, clear wall, <laughs> and we took the big fat Crayola, <laughs> and we created our masterpiece. Yes. And she did a big a backflip from a standing position of just real... Only on paper do that. And I think some of us got tight when that happened. And so I really want adults to come home to who they are, creativity, in terms of their creativity. And I really want children to be allowed to stand in that creative space, whatever it looks like. Whatever it looks like. Yes. Yes. 
Yeah. And, you know, it's such a poignant thing. I mean, I've have said many times how grateful I am. You know, I'm a working class blue collar kid from the Midwest who went to a public school who happened to have a pretty damn good liberal arts program that included not just music, jazz and classical, and but we had visual arts and we had theater and, you know, now all that stuff is gone now, right? It's all been defunded to your point. And who would I be? I am who I am today because of those programs. You know, sure, I was a AB student. I was fine in other subjects, maybe not so much math, but I was a you know AB student. And but it, but I was an arts like yes, I played sports. Yes, I, but but it was the arts programs that made me who I am. I really believe it. I don't know if you've ever read the book Orbiting the Giant Hairball from Gordon McKenzie. But Gordon was the chief creative officer for Hallmark Cards for years, and he's not with us anymore. But he had written this book called Orbiting the Giant Hairball, which essentially is about how you maintain your sort of artistic integrity working in a corporate kind of environment, you know, and some of the challenges. And so he tells this rather poignant story because he would go and lecture to school kids as a way of giving back, right? And he always started his talks with the same question. Who here is an artist? And in kindergarten, every kid raises their hands. First grade, maybe half the class. By third grade, he said there's like one kid in the back who says, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm an artist back here. And what are we doing? Why have we designed a system that oppresses or represses or what you know whatever the creative energy the creative juice that drives everything there is no economy without creativity <laughs> you know wall street and cap you know and the capitalists can think they are the most important because they have the gold and apparently person with the gold makes the rules but they would have jack if it weren't for the architects and the designers and the artists and the writers and the thinkers that help come up with the big ideas that they that they can't come up with on their own. I think some of it is habit. Yeah. I think it's the habit of chasing the American dream. Mm, our culture. Yeah. Oh yeah. I think that I think we have to detox from a lot of things. I think one thing the pandemic did is it forced many people to have to be with themselves. Yes. You start to have to pull apart who am I and, you know, what is this pandemic and what do you mean I have to stay at home? And I think a lot of people during that time became makers Mm. of all kinds. People who hadn't picked up a knitting needle, people who hadn't explored paper mache since they were wee ones, People who had really not been in their garages with the, on their workbench mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, put, picked up instruments that had mm-hmm. been sitting, mm-hmm. and I think it and and I think people also began to tell each other more stories. Mm-hmm. This whole business of being on a screen was hard, and I think people were working to figure out how do we connect with each other if we can't be in the same space. I think one of the results is many of us are really coming home to our lives before the pandemic. Is that how we're really supposed to live? And now that we are arguing that the pandemic is more under control, do we just pick up like we did before? 
Are we going to continue to make time for silence? I was thinking the other day that during the pandemic, I mean, I live in Denver. I live in the city. I live in a community that used to be primarily people of African ancestry, Black people. There are a few of us still on my block. But during the pandemic in the city, one of my neighbors took a picture of deer walking down the sidewalk to bear witness to the natural world, insisting on getting out, literally getting out in the street during this time when humanity had to come inside and we had to look out our windows and watch this was extraordinary. I think we just get into habits. I think we get into these ideas around what success looks like. We are not a society that values visual and performing arts. We just don't. Very few parents encourage their children to be principal cellists of a a philharmonic or to grow up and be the group Black Violin. And yet, I think life is calling us to come back to that space where we are creating beauty. Come home to who we are as poets and novelists and playwrights and dancers and comedians and sculptors and painters. I think life right now is really calling us to do this in an attempt to help humanity save itself. We have, you know, we have tore up the planet. We have been very disrespectful of it. And, you know, there are many people who are taking what someone would call junk and transforming it into beauty. I have faith that we're going to be all right as long as we continue to make space for the arts. Yes. Yes. I absolutely err on the side of optimism. I'm not, I'm a realist. Uh, you know, I try to be a realist. You know, there are these people who say, oh, I'm an optimist. And they sort of say it almost like they're in a cult. <laughs> you know? And I say that because there's also a lot of folks that I know, for example, that are very much the sky's falling, you know, the, or the, the world is end of days. <laughs> you, know? you know, if you know a little bit of history, you can have a little faith and hope, right? Because if you know a little bit of history, you know that, guess what? On a lot of metrics, we've been, the world's always been a tough spot. It's been a tough place, really very horrible for a lot of people. Today, we have, on so many metrics, we're doing so much better than we, than we did 100 years ago and even 50 years ago and certainly 250 years ago. Now, that's not to say we don't have real problems that we got to deal with, of course, but we've always had real problems to deal with. We just, because of social media and 24-7 news and whatever, like we're amplifying. Oh, and by the way, we're not amplifying news. We're amplifying content, which is for, you know, ratings and clickbait and everything. So if we would just put the screens down and look around and see those deer and see our neighbors and see our community, I think we, that's how you start to have hope, right? That's how you start to realize like, no, 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 you know what? I'm actually, wait a minute. I am actually okay. And by the way, my neighbor's okay. And maybe we can come together and, and make the neighborhood a little better or the community a little better. And for me, you know, I try to be uber realistic about where we're at in time and the history. I definitely err on the side of optimism because if you know enough 
of history. I feel like we're moving in the right thing, the long arc of history. It's slow and messy and ugly, but it feels like the arc of humanity bends towards justice. At least that's my hope. That's my faith. And artists and storytellers are so vital to be those truth tellers and to focus our gaze on the hope and the places for hope and faith and positivity and truth, you know, because culture writ large presumably is not going to do it. I mean, your, your work, I love your work so much because it, for many reasons, but the fact that you're honoring elders and ancestors, and in this case, we were talking about in your, from your community. And we live in a culture that does not value our culture, American culture writ large, does not value elders and ancestors or wisdom or the wisdom of ages. We celebrate youth. We celebrate, my goodness, we need uh, storytellers and artists like you shining a light on these heroes of humanity. I am a real enthusiast of the storyteller Jan Blake. She is based in Manchester. And I think she originates from the Caribbean, Jamaica, but home is now, or at least where she is living, is Manchester. And she pulls on. She is, she is a full-time professional storyteller who, like Sweet Honey in the Rock, takes the story to teach. So sometimes she will present her audience with dilemmas where she does not give them the answer. They got to figure that out. Mm -hmm. That's a part of the story. Mm -hmm. The other thing she will do is in the telling and the weaving and the birthing of a story, she insists that the audience comes with her. Mm -hmm. Opalonga Pugh was a storyteller, an official storyteller Mm -hmm. in Denver, Colorado, who studied in West Africa. I think she was in uh, Senegal. She was always talking about, you know, what's the story behind this? How do you tell your story? The power and significance of using your voice to tell your story to heal yourself and inadvertently healing someone else. And one of the things that I'll be doing this summer is studying with Jan Blake so that I, as a storyteller, will be able to deepen my work in ceramics and weave sort of the visual and the performing art together for the sake of getting others to think about those artifacts that are part of their everyday life, that are imbued with meaning, It looks like a garden variety cereal bowl, but when you realize that your grandmother, your grandmother's hands had been around that bowl, if you weren't looking just right, you know, an uncle would lay their pipe in this bowl. Or, you know, when the bowl was clean, there would be a treat when you came home from school in this bowl. I think we we overlook the energy for me, the world is what we see and what we don't see. I'm a, I'm a deep believer in ancestors. I'm a deep believer in a force bigger than myself. And, you know, the tangible is important. But I know as a person whose ancestry 
comes from displaced African people, that they were visionaries. They had to be visionaries to even think about, we're going to make it enough so others will come and take this forward. And we're going to continue to claim freedom and think about who we were in ancient Ghana, in ancient Mali, in ancient Songhai, and in great Zimbabwe, and recognize that, you know, somehow we're linked to infinity. So we're going to take it one breath at a time. We're going to take one step at it. We're going to bear witness to beauty. We're going to bear witness to just the elegance and the grace of a child's smile and try to bring that out in the music or bring that out in the dance or celebrate, document the power of who we are in our poetry, in our hip hop, in our classical music, in our African classical music, in our gospel, in our spirituals. I think that humanity is extraordinary, but I'm very clear that we've got to get clear about how we're all connected. To me, my heart bleeds when I am taking my 17-year-old to school in the morning and we're in the car talking about a youth who was shot picking up his siblings. In our household, we talk about how do you contribute to this family? Well, that youth contributed by picking up his siblings. That was his job. And to be shot doing what you're meant to do to contribute to your family. You know, to have to talk to my son about this this morning and to have to say to him, I love you, Bemandwele, and I can't, I can't hold you close to me all the time. All I can do is stay prayed up, remind you that you are linked to a people that are watching you all the time and care about you and you can't see, and that you are meant to be here on this planet. And I have to trust that when we say goodbye in the morning, that when you come home on the public transportation, we will gather again. You know, I have to trust that staying prayed up for myself and other girls and boys and youth and men and women who think they're going to be able to just come home because we assume that's what we can do. We cannot take these moments for granted. We cannot. We just can't. So, you know, if we can stay safe, take care of who we are in terms of our physical and mental health, and think very carefully about the aesthetics in our lives, the beauty in our lives. And if there isn't some beauty, we got to make some beauty. Yeah, we'll be okay. And not worry about whether or not somebody thinks it's real art or not. You know, when I was filling out the application and there's a question about this idea of your work not being real art, is it real art? Something to that effect. Art has so many functions. And we just never know what body of work 
what piece of work could potentially save somebody's life because an artist created it. It's not easy being called to be an artist. It is a calling. Yes. Maybe you'll get to a place where you can pay your mortgage. But if you can't pay your mortgage and your soul needs to do it anyway, then you've been called. Mm. And, you know, in this moment, I feel very grateful that that young man, that youth made it. I have been thinking since 2020 about a quilt I want to make that uses the different words that people in the community call their mothers because I was very touched. I was horrified when George Floyd was lynched right before us and that we kept getting re-traumatized. What struck me is when he comes out of the police car, you know, they let him come out on the other side. He says, thank you. That man had home training. However he was being constructed in that moment, somebody taught him something about politeness and courtesy. And it didn't save him. But in that moment, I knew so much about this man's family. I knew so much about what his mother tried to do. And the fact that he tells the officer that his mother had died. And we hear him call his mother, call out to his mother. And I envision the essence and the spirit of this woman reaching for her baby. When I can get myself together enough to take on that quilt, I'm hoping it will really be a healing one because it's very difficult to be a woman of African ancestry in this country and have children, particularly boy children, and not have your heart go tight when, for some reason, they're 15 minutes late, 30 minutes late. You get re-traumatized constantly. So I'm looking forward to working on that ceramic quilt, even while I'm, I have some anxiety about working on it. Because I don't know that my wonderful, brilliant, curious, vibrant son will grow up to be an elder. But that is my goal, that he will walk on this planet and feel a sense of ownership and be able to walk with starch in his back and grace in his step and contribute through whatever aesthetic, whatever form of natural beauty he can offer. That's the best I can do. The weight of making that quilt, I hope you take this in the way I mean it. I mean, it strikes me like one of those projects that almost feels too big, right, to take on. I mean, I know, I mean, I know you will and I know, but it's like, even for me, knowing what I know and listening to you now and what have you, it's like, even for me, I'm looking at this going like, man, this, this almost feels like too much to take on something so sacred, but that's just my sense of it. So I I know you're approaching this. I can only imagine the amount of what's the word I want, just reverence 
and respect and heavy heartedness that you have around this. And I guess what I'm really trying to say is I, I hope that doesn't stop you. I hope you're you're able to get there sooner rather than later and, and, and make this quilt. Well, it's necessary. I mean, my son has, after this year, he'll have one more year of high school. Mm. I can't live in terror. I cannot live in terror. That's fear. One of my neighbors who lives across the alley from me, she became an ancestor this past March. And we went to her home going. And one of the pieces that really struck me is this woman had four children, two girls and two boys, and both of her boys were killed. You know, they did not bury their mother. And that did not get in the way of her joy. That did not get in the way of, you know, she took that pain with her each and every day. And she made a way, envisioned bringing four people to the planet and only half of them outlive you. I see art as a way, as a portal to healing. I will make it because I must. I will make it because I must. You're called to make it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And a lot of my work pulls on the literature of Black women writers. And I think that fiction allows us to explore all kinds of possibilities. Art is a problem-solving experience for the maker, but also for the audience. One of my favorite authors, you know, my number one being Octavia Butler, but I love to read the work of Tanana Reeve Du. She, her space is horror. And her mother was one of the, her mother and father were both a part of the civil rights movement in Tallahassee, Florida. Her mother got blinded when I think a police officer threw tear gas in her face. And for the rest of her life, she had to wear dark glasses. But her mother was such an enthusiast for horror. And Tanana Reeve Du, her husband is Stephen Barnes, who is also this premier speculative fiction writer. They're both just masterful at the art and science of writing and coming home to one's imagination. I think the power, and I'm, I'm, I'm pulling this from what Tanana Reeve Du says, I'm paraphrasing it poorly, but when oppressed people can watch horror, something that they live as a part of an everyday lived experience, yeah, I suppose it's kind of like taking on a Sudoku puzzle. Horror, speculative fiction, Fantasy gives us an opportunity through the imagination to to solve a variety of social justice re what were those cubes Rubik's Rubik's cubes social justice Rubik's cubes cubes they kind of give us a space mm-hmm. to imagine all of this is about imagination can't we imagine a world where there's authentic Social justice. Some days I can't. Other days, yeah, I can see it. 
And I think art, because art insists upon you bringing your imagination forward, bring it to the front of what's happening in your life. And let's see what happens. I'm going to give you this Crayola. I'm going to tell you to go to that wall and do not step away until you've created something that calls your name from the inside out. Because if it truly calls your name from the inside out, it will call somebody else's. I did not take lightly being a recipient of this award. Not real art is taking real art even deeper. (laughs) I love that. I'm grateful. Mm. I'm grateful. Well, I'm grateful for you. My heart is kind of swollen right now, if I'm honest. It's sort of like just listening to you, absorbing you, taking in your energy. I'm sort of kind of speechless. It's uh, it's just so wonderful. My heart is really warmed right now and delighted. And I'm just so grateful to have you as part of the Not Real Art family. And by the way, I realized, should I be calling you doctor? <laughs> no. Hey, doctor. <laughs> I, I, I think you, you have the honor of being our first PhD, certainly our PhD oh. recipient, if not oh. maybe the first PhD, uh, well, maybe the second PhD on the podcast. So. Oh, well, thank you. You're classing you. up the joint. Oh, well. <laughs> like I said, I feel like I have the best job in the world sometimes because I get to hang out with amazing humans like you and hear your story and talk about it and learn. I'm just, I'm just a a sponge, you know, like I, I'm just here to learn and observe. And, you know, I always feel like hearing people's stories and their truths uh, make me a better human because it builds, it creates empathy in me. Right. Like that's the, that's the, that's what we're talking about. Right. You know, the ability to see each other, hear each other, create spaces for each other so that we can honor each other. And hopefully, you know, see the world through a different set of eyes. And, you know, that's how empathy happens. And and art is, is just so essential to, I think, that development of empathy. You know, and everything you're doing is just personifies that. When did you connect with Clay? How old were you when you realized that Clay was going to be your medium? I was maybe 35. Yeah. So like a year ago, right? Like a year ago? (laughs) Okay, whatever you say. (laughs) We'll take whatever you think and make it real. I'm going to be 53 next month. So I went to a friend's 40th birthday party the other day. I said, oh, to be 40 again. (laughs) Uh, Yes, right. My father died and I was working on my dissertation. Mm -hmm. And I had a partner at the time and he existed on... My going away. I was teaching at the University of University of California Davis, mm-hmm. and he insisted that I go away and let myself have a season to really to just be and grieve. And I went to some retreat spot, and one of they had these these little courses you could take, and I took a hand building clay class, and it was just a real simple little workshop and I fell in love. It was a sensory experience that I can still remember. And I think I still have one of the pieces that I made. I still have it. I will say I nearly left my graduate program. I was getting my degree in anthropology at Johns Hopkins and 
I just, all I wanted all the time was to do, be, explore, play. I'd come so far, you know, I pulled myself together and was reminding myself that being ABD is not a degree. So Mm -hmm. I finished it. But as soon as I finished my degree, I started taking the concepts that were in my dissertation and translating them into visual art. And my dissertation research looked at the experiences of women in the Rastafari movement in Jamaica and how they claimed their Africanity and how they came to understand themselves as royal, as divine, and as freedom fighters, and what they expected of their menfolk. And so I, I made a series of pieces. And at the University of California, Davis in Africana Studies, they took the conference room, cleared out the furniture, and turned it into an art gallery for a month and let me exhibit the work that came out of my dissertation. And that was the beginning. I think that show happened in 1999. And then in, I think, January of 2000, I applied for a residency in Cortona, Italy, and happened to be the recipient. And I went to Italy for six months. I I drank the Kool-Aid. I drank drank the Kool-Aid without the water. I was just, well, to your point, it's a calling. It's a compulsion. I mean, you can't, you know, if you're an artist, you can't not make art, whether you pay the bills with it or not. It's not even the point, right? The right. point is you have to, you, it's in you and it's got to come out and right. that's it. And that's clear. You know, I want to ask you, does the, does the name Jim McDowell mean anything to you? Not at the moment. We produce another podcast called Artsville with our colleagues out of Asheville, North Carolina or Artsville, the podcast we like to say celebrates American contemporary arts and crafts from Asheville and beyond. And Joe McDowell is a potter ceramicist Hmm. out of the Asheville area, but he's quite famous for his face jugs where he is. Okay. Right. Is it clicking now? Okay. So, so yeah, yeah, yeah. He is, he was on the podcast. He's such an amazing person and human being. I would love to connect you guys if you don't yeah, I just think you guys would be like two peas on a pod and it'd be amazing, the kind of collaboration. I'd love to be in dialogue with him. I'll be sure to link link you guys up because okay. he's phenomenal. And I'll send you an email to the to the podcast and to the Artsville thing Perfect. that you can listen to. I know you guys would get along swimmingly, so I want to make oh, sure good. That, uh, that I make that introduction. But I just, you. you know, everything you're saying, just my heart is so full right now and I'm just so charmed and delighted and honored and grateful for our time, you know, together and on all the kind words. And, you know, and yeah, wouldn't it be wonderful if if not real art becomes more real than real art or, or deeper than, re- you know, and, and, and I've said it would be wonderful to get to a point where not real art becomes synonymous with art, <laughs> like period, right? And because it's funny because when we came up with the name and it was born out of having been in the arts for 30 years, having known artists and the struggle that artists have, not just with legitimacy, but with the gatekeepers who want to proclaim that they know what is and isn't art and what is and isn't real art. And so the name Not Real Art obviously was a bit of a critique 
uh, on that sense of entitled legitimacy, which is bullshit, you know. Mm -hmm. And so when we launched it, you know, it was fascinating because artists got the joke. Ninety nine percent of artists got the joke immediately. Right. They just they heard the name. They, they, mm -hmm. they knew it. They got it. They laughed. They understood. And they realized that we were for them. And it's been funny over the years to kind of talk to more serious art world stakeholders, gallerists or curators or maybe collectors who say, not real art, I, I don't understand. What does that mean, not real art? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> I was like, we're, we're not for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Keep going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But, well, Dr. Ella Maria Foley-Ray, I am so honored, grateful, touched, blessed to call you not just a colleague, but I hope a friend and part of the Not Real Art family forever. Absolutely. Thank you. This is just the beginning, my friend. This is just the beginning. We're better for having you. I have to really celebrate you for your insistence that I get an opportunity to to be with you because the our first attempt was just a study in technology gone awry. <laughs> I just thought to myself, we are just two steps away from a hanger and some foil and you know, we're standing <laughs> on one foot, you know, facing is it the West or the you know, you just right, right. thank you. Thank you for insisting and having faith that this was gonna happen. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, I mean, part of what his, so yes, that day, the tech gods were definitely messing with us uh, in a big way. And that was very, that was an anomaly. I mean, that, that was, you know, doesn't typically happen at all. Usually things go very swimmingly. But the whole point is that the grant, our grant, the not real our grant isn't about just handing over some money and going away. The grant is about helping celebrate and elevate and amplify our grant winners, their stories and their work. And so, yeah, sure, you get, you know, a small, you know, $2,000 grant, which is nice to get. But but we really want to help elevate and celebrate each of our winners and amplify their stories. And so that's why coming on the podcast is so important, because this will live on and, in, you know, who knows who will hear it and lots of people and good things will come out of it. And We'll be doing other things, and now you're part of you know you're part of our orbit and our ecosystem, and so more things will come out of it. So, so for me, the grant is as much about the promotion and the amplification, and I think that's where the value. I hope that's where the real value is for our winners, because you know, I wish it was twenty thousand, but uh, it's two thousand. So you know what else can we do? And the one thing I've realized over the years, having worked with artists for. 30 years for the most part, because artists, obviously not a monolithic community, and rightfully so, God help us if they ever are. But the one thing that I think, in my experience, most artists want, need, and would agree on is the is more exposure, more promotion, more amplification, more. And so that's where I feel like Not Real Art comes in, because we want to be that platform. Well, I am grateful. I am very grateful. This has been a very powerful experience. I hope to continue to stand in a space that will honor not real art as well as my community. Well, I know you will. You already are. And we're just going to keep moving forward with that faith and hope and that positive energy that the world needs. And together we will be stronger than apart. I'm just 
So grateful for our time together. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. My God, did you have class today? Yeah. Yeah. Where are you going now? Back to class? No, I'm going to uh, power grade. It's the, it, we're near the end of the semester. And okay. as usual, I'm behind, but <laughs> there is a light at the end of the tunnel, and I'm hoping it's not just a flashlight. <laughs> or the front of an oncoming train, right? Well, and then there's that. There is that. Uh, well, and yesterday was tax day. So, my God, this week is just nuts, nuts, nuts day, uh, week. Was it tax but, day? Uh, oh, <laughs> no, no. You got plenty of time. <laughs> Ella Maria, thanks so much for coming on. You. And you be well. We'll be in touch, and we will talk again real soon. We will. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Not Real Art Podcast. Please make sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. Also, remember to subscribe so you get all of our new episodes. Not Real Art is produced by Crew West Studios in Los Angeles. Our theme music was created by Ricky Peugeot and Desi Deloro from the band Parlor Social. Not Real Art is created by We Edit Podcast and hosted by Captivate. Thanks again for listening to Not Real Art. We'll be back soon with another inspiring episode celebrating creative culture and the artists who make it.